Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Join us on our journey into the past, the present, and the future as we explore the relationship between technology and humanity. Together, we are going to find out what it means to live in a society where everything is connected and the only constant is change. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Hello, everybody. This is Marco Cappelli. I'm flying solo today with the audio signal on ITSP Magazine. Sean is flying somewhere else solo with some other podcast and uh, we'll join again soon probably next time of course when i say i'm flying solo i'm not really going to be here talking all day because that will be extremely boring we have a great uh, guest today and as we usually do on audio signal lately we are talking about a book and this is a book uh, that is very relevant i would say both for society and for technology and uh, again, we have the author is not new to writing books. This is his second book. And he will tell a little bit more about himself. His name is Dr. Robert Pearl. And welcome to the show. Thank you, Marco. I was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, which is a delivery part of Kaiser Permanente for 18 years, at which point I wrote the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare, and While We're Usually Wrong. It was a Washington Post bestseller. And now, as you noted, I am publishing my next book called Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. I teach at the Stanford University School of Medicine and the Stanford University Business School. I also write for Forbes, and I have my own podcast, Fixing Healthcare and Coronavirus, The Truth. There you go. So you, you, you're very involved into educating people. It sounds like this is really your mission about what is going on. And let's be honest, a lot has been going on, especially in the, in, the past, uh, in the past year. We don't need to dig too much into that. But as you say, you do have a podcast about it. And I feel like this conversation, which is driven by the book that it will be coming out soon, it's uh, really much relevant to this uh, kind of like revelation of how this healthcare system that it was, you know, hopefully will be soon again, very powerful here in the United States has shown uh, uh, a pretty big amount of flaws into what has been going on. So how, how much of this is part and inspiration of your book? The American healthcare system is very broken. It's the most expensive in the world. It's more than double the cost of almost every other country around the globe, and the results that we get are not particularly good compared to the other 11 most industrialized nations, 
we're last. The systemic issues have been well analyzed by lots of people, Marco. They've looked at the insurance problems of reimbursement. They've looked at uh, inefficient and slow computers. They've looked at bureaucratic tasks, all the problems that exist, and they're all true. But I'm looking at something in this book on caring, how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients, that has not been looked at, which is the physician culture, something that doctors are not aware of. And I believe that if we're going to improve the health care that patients receive, we have to address both the systemic and the cultural issues. Now, for the cultural issues, these are the values, the beliefs, the norms that doctors learn in medical school and residency and carry with them their entire life. And they're often areas of tremendous strength. It gave doctors the courage during the coronavirus pandemic to go take care of incredibly sick patients at a time when they didn't have the protective gear they needed. They put on uh, garbage bags when they couldn't get the appropriate protective gowns. They put on salad lids when they couldn't get what's called N95 masks. They were heroes. And yet, if you look at the outcomes for patients, you start to see a very problematic underbelly. As an example, you start to see the number of times where doctors failed. And I don't mean individual doctors. I mean the medical profession to prevent or to adequately manage chronic disease. As an example, the number one associated problem for patients hospitalized was high blood pressure, hypertension. Across the United States today, it's controlled somewhere between 55 and 60%. And yet the large multi-specialty medical groups are able to do it 90% of the time. But doctors don't notice it because they don't value prevention as much as they should. Yeah, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk a little bit more about that. And maybe we, we can start that connection with, with technology. So there is a cultural issue for people that uh, choose a profession. If we look back at the Hippocratic uh, oath, right? I mean, it's people that are motivated to do this. You, you just don't do it because, oh, I just found a job as a doctor, right? I mean, that's something you want to do. And there are outstanding heroes, outstanding people that go like Doctors Without Borders and so forth, that they really donate their life to, to the profession. But there is, you said, this culture of non-prevention, but intervention. And so taking care of the problem once it arises until the problem is not there, probably we shouldn't worry about it because there is medicine for it. So there is a cultural issue, but technology, it can help. I mean, we're at a stage where technology can be, I'm going to dare to say, the game changer. And how, how is this coming into place into changing the culture as well? Or are we having an issue in adopting it? You mentioned Doctors Without Borders. I should tell listeners that all the profits from the book on caring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients will go to Doctors Without Borders, a charity. Wonderful. 501c3 charity. Yeah. Uh, and anyone who pre-orders the book will get a discussion guide and a sign name, a book plate, and uh, some other goodies along the way. But getting to the question that you're posing, culture can't be explained. You have an Italian background. Why are the Italians and the Germans so different? 
I mean, there's no question that people coming from those two nations have very different cultures. Is it one better than the other? No, it's just, they're just different cultures that's handed down from generation to generation to generation. And that's what happens in medicine. Why don't doctors value prevention? Because in their minds, it's an easy thing to do. The fact they only get it right 55% of the time, they ignore that. They repress that. What they value is coming in and saving the day. And that's why they elevate the cardiologist who intervenes over the primary care physician who prevents the problem in the first place, even though the data says that add 10 primary care physicians to a community and the improvement in outcomes and longevity are two and a half times greater. There is some technology they like. The technology they like are the ones that elevate them from a cultural perspective to be more heroes. Robots helping them do surgery, as an example. They feel like a Star Wars character in action. Or these proton beam accelerators that sound like high-end physics. But take something very basic, like an electronic health record. How can you have high quality if everyone doesn't share the same data? How can you be sure what to do if you don't know what the other doctor did? And certainly, how are you going to intervene? to make sure the patients had the cancer screening or the right management of the elevated blood lipids and blood pressure to avoid a heart attack or a stroke. You're not going to do those things. It's just not valued particularly high. And it becomes a, another issue when you start to look at the ways that the physician culture allows doctors to fail to recognize how they violate some of their personal views of themselves. They see themselves as great healers, very virtuous. Doctors will tell themselves, I treat every patient the same. But it's not true. That's what culture does. It blinds you. So as an example within all of that, if you look at African-Americans, what you see is that they die two or are dying two to three times more frequently than white patients. Ask doctors about it. How they can explain it? Oh, it's just uh, culture. It's just societal, socioeconomic factors. Well, then why, when patients came to the ED early in the pandemic, when there were not enough testing kits, did the physicians test white patients with the same symptoms as black patients twice as often? Why did they give forty percent less pain medication to black patients? who came in with the same problem or following the same surgical procedure? Or why do black women die three times as often in childbirth, except when the attending physician is a black doctor? I go on and on and on. Technology has the potential to help address these issues. Doctors are not going to want it. Why is that? Because what they like is independence and control. That's the culture of medicine. I mean, we all like it. But if you think about the doctor's role elevated at the top of society, technology levels the field. Educating patients. Doctors like variation in practice. They like the fact that everyone can do it their way. But what does the data show from every other aspect of society Evidence-based outcomes, when followed, lead to better results 
The problem with doctors and technology, it's not they don't like the technology. They don't like the fact that technology can make them do something in a more consistent, excellent way, even with better results, but make them feel less important. That's the nature of culture, particularly the physician culture. And that's that's interesting because, of course, human beings, right? I mean, that's that's how we are. The the thing that it's really relevant for me is shouldn't the doctor see that technology is actually not the enemy, but is empowering them to be even more powerful? You know, if that's that's you know the way they they like to feel, or you know, like they know that they have a certain role in saving people's lives, so that's empowering. But it's kind of like I look at Iron Man, right? I mean, he used technology to become a better, more powerful man and, and do better and, and do more for society. So what is the big obstacle of this? Is it just like it's not presented the right way by the technologist? It's not presented the right way by uh, the system itself, the hospitals? I mean, do they feel like it's going to take uh, the job away instead of just augmenting their capacities? This gets back to the fundamental issue of culture, and culture is often about hierarchy. Culture allows any group, it doesn't matter what that group is, to see itself as at the upper end of the spectrum. And why does it see themselves there? Because it defines the characteristics that create that hierarchy. And physicians like to be at the top of the hierarchy, as everyone does, as you pointed out. The difference is that when physicians do things to be at the top of the hierarchy and avoid those that might lower them down, they harm other people. That's what's different about it. What's also interesting, Marco, is that there's 44% burnout rate amongst physicians right now. 44%, that's huge. Over 400 suicides a year. And again, if you ask the physicians why are you so burned out? They'll give you the systemic answers. We work too hard. We see too many patients. We don't make enough money. The computers are too slow. The bureaucratic tests too great. And they're all true. But what they miss are the subpieces. Let me give you an example. All right. If you look at the different specialties, what you see is that pediatricians who are near the bottom of the income scale are actually pretty satisfied as opposed to adult primary care physicians. And the group that's most burned out are urologists. Now that's strange. Urologists make almost half a million dollars a year. It's not the money. They make twice as much as the, as the primary care, and yet they have almost 10% higher burnout rates. So why is that? And the answer is because the hierarchy in medicine is based upon the sophistication of the procedures you do, not whether statistically you save more lives. The operation that urologists love is this robotic prostatectomy. Uh, it's, again, it's like Star Wars. You're sitting at a distance. You're manipulating these arms. They're inside the patient. They're doing surgical maneuvers. The only problem is the surgery's never been shown to have better clinical outcomes. However, it does change that hierarchy of medicine. What happened about almost a decade ago? The bodies that look at the screening test that we used called the PSA, the prostate-specific antigen, was seen to lead to a huge amount of overtreatment 
with very little gain in survival. And so physicians stopped ordering this test. The number of people needing prostate surgery diminished significantly. And patients were deciding to do what's called watchful waiting, waiting to see what was happening with the cancer rather than moving ahead. So more and more urologists find themselves not doing this procedure that adds value, the specialty drops down the hierarchy, burnout occurs despite the income and despite the fact they might be doing just as much good work for the patient. That's just the way that culture works. It's why I wrote the book, This is the Invisible Force, and one that I believe is actually harming not just patients, but doctors as well. Yeah, and that's definitely something that catch your attention uh, when you read just the, the title of the book. I mean, it's definitely something that you want to try to figure out because you always see these, the doctor are the saviors and the patients are the one that rely on the doctor, but the doctor are suffering in this cycle as well. So let's go back to to technology and, and how, and the bias as well, because I think that's a really important uh, conversation. We do have many conversations about this in, in different realm of wherever you use artificial intelligence algorithms, you're always going to find that there is bias against women, uh, race, um, anything that is diverse, right? So how can technology really be adopted in the right way? How can be controlling the bias? Because obviously we're the one that input the, the, the data in the machine learning. So if, if it comes with bias, we're just going to amplify bias. And how can these ones tune in the right way uh, really help this prevention and equality in the cure? Can you give us some examples? I wrote an article for Forbes about how artificial intelligence can serve in this function. So let me talk about that now. We may want to double back to telemedicine, overall computer functions, algorithms, and so many different ways that it can work. So as you've told listeners, artificial intelligence works great when you take two samples, let's say um, 5,000 mammograms that show cancer, 5,000 mammograms that don't. We know that's the case because we've waited five years to see the outcome and results. And now the... AI algorithm compares these two, and it finds a huge number. You're the expert. It might be 100. It might be 200. Slight differences between them, and it comes up with an ability to diagnose breast cancer on mammograms actually better than a radiologist can. So that's when it works well. When is it problematic? Well, the first way it's problematic is if it doesn't look at the data. So I gave you the example early on when physicians were doing twice as many tests for white patients in the COVID arena rather than black patients. Now, why might that have happened? Well, it's called implicit bias. What we know is that when we see someone who looks like ourselves, we have more empathy, studied many times in psychology, and we take care of them better, not consciously but subconsciously. So this is the phenomenon that's going on that leads the physicians to act in that particular way. They see someone who's like them, they don't want to take a chance. Someone who doesn't look like them, they're willing to take the risk or have that person obviously take the risk. Well, AI can look at that. If you have all the information on temperature, blood pressure, 
some of the laboratory data. Every hospital has an electronic health record. And you take the people who receive the test and you start to compare them on the basis of symptomatology. It can identify the fact that there is a difference. And then it can, at the time of care now, once the algorithm has figured this out, notify the physician to say, it looks as though what you're doing is biased. Now, is it biased all the time? No. But it can point that out in a way that it would have been, as I say, the implicit bias research, the way that when images are flashed in front of physicians, sorry, in front of people in general, and they see individuals who look like themselves, they tend to give higher associated ideas of intelligence and uh, compassion rather than people on the other side. A second way that it can do it is actually looking at research projects. And I talk a little bit about the study that was done by Optum. So Optum decided they want to invest money in the people who use the particular United Healthcare Insurance product to be able to add added treatment to prevent complications and future difficulties. Very, very aspirational. The problem is that a United Healthcare only has claims data. How often did you come in? How much care was provided? Now, to the extent that that data has in it a bias, by which I mean that white patients were given $1,800 a year more care than black patients on average, it's going to come up with the fact that more white patients are sick than black patients, not because they're using clinical information to differentiate the two groups, but because they've used a biased measure, the amount of care provided. And so the algorithm came out to be very biased. It only identified something like 18% of black patients who were in this group rather than 47%, which it should have been. And it was interesting at the time, Marco, a lot of the newspapers talked about how AI was biased. No, AI wasn't biased at all. The physicians providing the care over the previous year or two years were the ones who were biased. Yeah. And, and if you insert, sorry, but if you insert, just to clarify for the audience, it's like if you insert bad data and then you start amplifying that, then the angle, it's kind of like, you know, the, the more distant you go, the angle, the, even if it's minimal, it becomes exponentially bigger. So you're amplifying that. And then you can point the finger to AI, as you say, but AI is just as good as we make it, right? Yeah, that's why I say when you put in absolutely correct data, like mammogram results relative to breast cancer five years later, it's, it's better than humans. Putting bad data, it can only be as good or, as you say, amplified, be worse. But the other one, the final way, I think, is what I like to call or others have labeled, but I like to refer to as institutional racism, which is that when you look at data, particularly on the death rate of black women being three times higher than white women, except when the attending physician's black, you start to ask yourself, how could that happen? And what you see is that there are two main reasons why women die during and after childbirth, excess bleeding and elevated blood pressure. And the problem is that it doesn't always show itself immediately. So how much care is provided? How often is the patient checked on? To what extent is the patient's 
complaints listened to, these are very subjective. These are exactly the ones that come inside a cultural context. And now what you can start to do is to start to analyze exactly, is this happening? And if so, when does it not happen? And what I mean by that is, we've already said if the attending physician's black, then the outcome is different. What about if the nurses are? What about if some of the nurses are? What about if there is, not using the black patient, but a, uh, a Spanish speaking patient, an interpreter who's there, how many pieces in the equation are biased that produce this triple mortality? AI is the perfect tool to do that because, again, massive data isn't a problem for an artificial intelligence algorithm and a high-speed computer. It can look at tens of thousands of blood pressure readings in a matter of, what, a second or two. So fast able to do that. So it can do a multi, multi, multi-variant analysis. And now having found that, it can identify when it's happening again. So AI has that potential if it has the right set of data. And as you pointed out, if it has a biased set of data, it's going to amplify that in a bad way. So organizations looking at research projects can bring this in as a factor. If you're going to look at two groups and one is much wealthier than the other or older than the other or uh, in some other way different, everyone understands that the research that comes out of that won't be particularly good. On the other hand, AI algorithm can now look at not only what happened in the past leading to the deaths, but then monitor it on an ongoing basis, be able to come up with suggested improvements, whether it has to be with more black nursing, whether with language patients, it's Spanish-speaking individuals, or whether it's just noting to the attending physician and nurses caring for the the individual patients that you're not doing as good a job for this segment as another segment. And that's where the culture of medicine becomes positive. Because I believe that once doctors confront this reality. And that's what technology can do. It can force them to confront that reality. Now they become embarrassed. And culturally, that drives change to happen. You asked me earlier, it's not education, it's not intellectual. Culture is an emotional problem, one that doctors don't think of. They think of themselves as being intellectual entities. But in reality, we're all humans very much emotionally driven. Yeah, and I think the lesson here as we, as we wrap this conversation is is how it started. So that uh, technology could be this equalizer on one side where it, it can help to take away this bias. It can also help to prevent issues because it learns so much and it can predict, like the algorithm it, it predict. It's a predictive machine. And, and with, with machine learning, that's what it can do, again, if done correctly. And the other thing is that it can help to, again, to remove uh, these, uh, these stigmas against what is different and diverse that we just don't perceive as humans. And, uh, and the machine can be, really be that, that equalizer that brings uh, augment our 
human uh, capacities. That's that's the way I like to look at technology. It's it's our ally. It's not our enemy. It's not it's not going to take over. Uh, I don't believe in the artificial intelligence that is going to conquer the world. I think it will serve humanity to make it better. So great conversation. I, I definitely want to invite everybody to read the book when it comes out. But you were telling me before that it is available as pre-order as well. So tell us, as as we, we say goodbye to the audience for now, how they can get in touch with you or learn more about you and your book. And, uh, and then, of course, we'll leave uh, notes in the resource and links uh, that people can find on the podcast. So if people go to my website, robertperlmd.com, they can find information on the book. Uh, they can subscribe to my monthly musings, which has links to a lot of these articles and ideas. And as we said, the book, they can pre-order it. And if they do that, they'll get a discussion guide, a book reading list, a chance to read the introduction before anyone else, as well as the signed book plate. But let me add two more things, if I could, Marco, around the technology that I think listeners might be very interested in to look at two specific technologies that do exactly what you're talking about, have tremendous potential, and at the same time are often ignored or underutilized. One is telemedicine. You know, telemedicine was used by about 2% of doctors prior to the corona pandemic. All of a sudden, this infectious disease comes along and it bumps up to 60, 70%. Now, nothing else changed. You know, a decade ago, when I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we started using this extensively, but almost no one else did. Now, what happened? This is where the culture comes in. Why didn't doctors use it before? Clearly, it was better for patients. It's less expensive. It's easier to access. It actually helps address some of the racism issues because data has shown that the people who've gotten the best benefit are the ones who often haven't been able to access care because they don't have a car or they just too many buses to take to get to the doctor's office or they work two jobs and it's not open when they're off from their work situation. Telemedicine solves that problem for them. So why didn't they? Because the doctors, from a cultural perspective, like their office. They like the fact that the patient comes to them. They like having that staff there. It's not patient-focused, the culture. It's physician-focused. So telemedicine is changing. I believe it will replace 30 to 40% of what we do with better quality outcomes, greater convenience and access, and lower cost sitting there. And, and that's what a technology acceleration driven by this pandemic, we have seen it in a lot of things. Um, homeschooling, people starting using classes online. Again, there is a cultural change, as you said, you know, because teacher likes to have their kids at home. They found barriers, uh, broadband speed. That's that's one of those. Like, again, you know, you need to democratize technology. And I think that the benefit, as you say, will will arrive for, for everyone, hopefully. Uh, so I, I want to end this with a, with a positive thought, which is technology is there. Let's, let's welcome it um, in the best way we can, because sometimes we just need to change to make things better. We can't just always sit the way it is. You can't keep the status quo. If we're going to make American healthcare once again the best in the world, if we're going to make it affordable 
for the American populace, particularly in the post-coronavirus era. I mean, realize that the United States will have borrowed some like $8 trillion. They're going to have to pay back with interest. That the states will have to have balanced budgets. And small businesses are struggling, the ones that still exist. Healthcare costs are going to have to come down. And they can come down really only in two ways. They're not going to come down through the current fee-for-service system where the more doctors do, the more they get paid, whether it adds any value or not. It's not going to come down in a world where 30% of what doctors do today has been shown to add little or no value. It's going to come down because we provide better quality, easier to access at a lower price. And to do that, we're going to have to change the systems, how healthcare is reimbursed. We're going to have to add the technology using AI to help support physicians, using the electronic health record to make sure that information is shared across all of care delivery, using the AI to find the best opportunities that exist and embed that inside evidence-based outcomes. And it's going to come because we evolved the physician culture. And I believe, Marco, that when we evolve that culture in a way that doctors are paid differently, where they're paid a set fee to take care of a population of patients. As that culture evolves, because I answer your question from earlier, now they see prevention as, as valued more. Now they see avoiding chronic disease, complications with chronic disease, medical errors. They see telemedicine through a different lens. I agree with you. I'm very optimistic that we have an opportunity to change American medicine to save the lives of patients and to improve the satisfaction of physicians and technology will be a major driver of that. And I look forward to it very much. And so do I. Thank you very much. This, I think, is leave our audience with some good hope and the media too much talk really bad about technology with all the problem, but there is so much that's done for us, for our society. So, uh, Dr. Robert Pearl, thank you so much for being part of this, and uh, hopefully we'll have more conversation coming up soon. Uh, it will be my pleasure. Thank you, Marco. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com.